Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what is on the docket today? We've got a review of John Carpenter's comedic visual effects heavy homage to a classic tale of sci-fi horror, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Plus, I've got a confoundingly clear beer to pair with this perplexing picture, and we've both got something you should definitely check out in really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, Chris, what's up? So it's been a little while since we've done a uh, little John Carpenter Newswire. Is there more John Carpenter news? There's a little more John Carpenter news. There's a lot of news we we have just sort of skipped over because uh, we've been chugging along. But there's something that's happened since our last episode that I think we cannot avoid. Hmm, I wonder what that is. Well, I know you are... Uh, partial to avoiding trailers at all costs i knew you were gonna make me watch this but there's a new trailer for the uh halloween movie that's coming out this october directed by david gordon green and scored by john carpenter do do i have to watch it yeah i think we should discuss it all right there is the link let's hit play and then uh we'll discuss after testing one two three we're on we're here to investigate a patient that killed three innocent teenagers on a Halloween in 1978. He was shot by his own psychiatrist and taken into custody that night. And has spent the last 40 years in captivity. Hello, Michael. I have something you might like to see. <laughs> Everyone in my family like turns into a nutcase this time of year. Yeah, I mean your grandmother is Lori Strode. She was almost murdered. Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No, it was not her brother. That's something that people made up. Do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? What the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. So, Jake, what do you think? I think that's the worst psychiatrist in history. (laughs) Hi, John Wayne Gacy. I want to bring you some clown makeup. You going to bring the mask back to him? What is your goal here? That's fair. No, but but honestly, this made it look really good, and I'm I'm pretty excited about it. Especially, uh, I like that they're like, nah, that's just something people made up. Yeah, I really I really like that they're willing to just say. I mean, because it's a pretty bold move. There's a lot of people who love the Halloween franchise for good and bad, and and uh, to just say, okay, we're gonna take everything that comes after the first one and throw it away. That's that's bold. There, there are it, going to be people who are going to be upset 
but I think it makes for a more interesting story in that they're now older. They're not, you know, they're not the kids that they once were. Um, and, and so I hope that factors into this a little bit. I think it's good. I think it's good for a couple reasons, but especially because it's in the trailer telling people what they need to know, which is like, here's how we're writing off the rest of the franchise. It's stories people told. It's kind of like campfire stories about uh, the shape or Michael Myers. It's 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 that's what those were. Those were those are stories. Those were urban legends around it. Now let's get back to reality. Here's Halloween too. The one like there's there are a couple things that that do bother me a little bit. Like I I read a I think it was maybe after the first you know the test screenings that that happened. Um, it was a criticism basically saying that. Uh, if Michael Myers is captured on the same night as the original murders, then it kind of makes the close to Halloween where you just hear his breathing in the mask kind of going around to all these mm-hmm. places, makes that a little more anticlimactic if you know that, oh, he's going to be caught right after. Yeah, I thought about that too. I'm I'm, I'm hoping that they... In you know, instead of in the trailer, like in the movie, they're like, "Yeah, he killed three people back then." Also, he did some more stuff, and then we caught him. You wouldn't believe the other stuff he did. You know, maybe I don't know because you want him to have gotten away. He's 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 the shape. He's he's a force of nature. How'd they catch a force of nature? <laughs> the other thing that I was going to say is, I've always loved the idea of. Did you hear about what what Carpenter's idea was for? Uh, I think it was Halloween four. Like whenever they were just going to make it an anthology and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't going to follow Michael Myers after three. I, I don't remember. You may have told me. It was going to be said in Haddonfield, but it was going to be a ghost story with the ghosts of all the people that Michael Myers had killed. Oh, that sounds awesome. And in the back of my head, I was thinking, well, maybe they'll do an anthology thing after this. They'll settle Laurie Strode and Michael Myers, and then they'll do a Halloween movie that's completely unrelated to or you know it's not it's not following michael myers as the slasher anymore and in the back of my mind i was like wouldn't it be cool if they made that haddonfield movie i don't think they can do it now with uh with this timeline but that's fine no and and the the halloween brand uh i guess this will be a test to it if it does really well they'll want to keep using it but that sounds like the new like men in black uh, reboot that i heard about which is just new characters in the same universe with tw- uh, 21 jump street crossover it's not that, but it, it's a it's a it's a new story within that universe. The one thing that I will say I I didn't love about this trailer is the little uh, the little scare towards the end of Michael Myers in the closet. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know why you would give that away in the trailer. I guess I guess because you got to get butts in seats. But that would have been that would have been a great moment of is he isn't he in the theater? Yeah, what I'm I'm hoping is that. Um, Either in the theater, he's not in there. <laughs> you know, that, that that was just a cut for this. Mm-hmm. Or or that is such a minor thing that um, they're just telling people like, yes, this ultimately will be a horror film. Uh, I noticed that, you know, he kills another mechanic, takes the jumpsuit. I understand he's got to be in his, his, you know, iconic get up. But I'm hoping this doesn't lean too much into homage and fan service of... Oh, remember when this happened in this one and this one and this one? I hope it's for the most part its own film. Um, but we'll see. 
I mean, we can be excited that uh, that it really is Jamie Lee Curtis starring in it. Like, it really is a Laurie Strode story. Yeah. No, absolutely. So that's 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 very reassuring. I, I'm excited. I, I'm I'm definitely excited for it. I am too. Like we all, and we we are planning to discuss it uh, as a kind of combination Carpenter Shop War Starts Midnight episode when it uh, when it comes out in October. So stay tuned for that. I think it'll be a fun discussion. But in the meantime, we've got another John Carpenter movie to discuss: 1992's Memoirs of an Invisible Man. It all started on a Tuesday in March. If George hadn't introduced me to Alice... Let's not do anything cheap and meaningless. Okay, what do I owe you? She hadn't been so spectacular. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten so loaded that night. Ten minutes. Be as good as new. And none of this would have happened. Something's happened at the Magnoscopics facility in Santa Miro. Next thing I knew, I went from high profile to no profile. What have they done to me? Wait a minute, who are you guys? Keep your mouths shut, all of you. You're in a state of molecular flux. You want to live? You're going to have to trust us. Where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. I'm here. Sort of. I want my molecules back! Now there's a price in my head. The single most exotic intelligence asset on the planet is ours. I don't sleep well. I can see through my eyelids. I can see through the top of my head. But I'll never sell out. Think of the adventure we could have together. Yeah, we can go to Frontierland. Don't be afraid. It's me, Nick. You want to sit down? If not for Alice... We're the only people that can give you your life back. I'd be lost forever. You have a face again. You don't have any body makeup, do you? Dropped about 10 pounds. That I'd look great naked. (laughs) Alice! Go away! She saw me through it all. I got him. Chevy Chase. Morning. Morning. Daryl Hannah. Boy, how am I going to tell my mom about this? Just tell her you met a guy. Could be serious. He's transparent. Memoirs of an Invisible Man. A John Carpenter film. So, Jake, to begin this discussion, I just want to read you the uh, little description of this film from Letterboxd. All right, hit me. After a freak accident, an invisible yuppie runs for his life from a treacherous CIA officer while trying to cope with his new life. <laughs> Is that accurate? I mean, it's not not accurate. It's not not accurate. It's leaving out a lot. Um, so, Memoirs of, of an Invisible Man. This is uh, John Carpenter's first film in the 90s. Uh, it's, as we've said in kind of teasing it out, uh, has a lot of ILM effects to it. Um, it's got Chevy Chase. It's got Chevy Chase uh, being somewhat comedic Chevy Chase, but also trying to be a little more serious. Mm-hmm. And it's got, really, it's got a killer cast. I mean, the first time I put this on and just seeing the names, you know, Chevy Chase, I knew Chevy Chase was in it. I knew Daryl Hannah was in it. That was about it. But Sam Neill is also in this. Michael McKean is also in this. Stephen Tobolowski is also in this. Uh, I was getting really excited just seeing the names rolling up. Um, so Jake, let's just dive into it. What, what's your sort of just initial gut take on, uh, on this film? I'll I'll tell you what I did. I put it on to watch it and I made it through like 45 minutes and I was like, I have to go to bed. This is tough. And it got right up until he, uh, got to that summer house. Okay. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And then I watched, I picked up the next day and watched the rest of it. I don't know if my mood changed or what, but from there on out, I pretty much enjoyed the movie. The, the, huh. Yeah. Like I, I was like, oh, this, this got a lot better. I don't know if the plot just caught some momentum and it wasn't as much like wallowing around like, oh no, I'm invisible and I can't eat because it looks gross. <laughs> like there are, was just, there are several moments that sort of really rely on the visual effects gags and like there, there seemed like there are moments that were written just for like, Oh, we can actually pull that off now. So let's try to pull that off now. Look, the the best one I thought was probably the one where he was smoking and, and his lungs filled up with smoke. That yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah. Like, but the, the eating one didn't do it as much for me. The uh, eating one just was, was weird. Uh, the, brushing the teeth is pretty great. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's so that's let's kind of go back to the beginning or let, let me let me give you my my initial take. I'm somehow almost the polar opposite of you. I and I've watched this twice now. Um, I think the first hour or so, whatever, basically leading up to the summer house. I like that movie. I I, I think it's clunky in a lot of places. There's a lot of like you can. You can see the mechanics of mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. screenplay working. You can feel all of that. Um, so it's not, you know, it's by no means a flawless picture in that first hour or so. Um, but it is a lot of fun. Like I like, I like the playing around in the um, with the noir and invisible man tropes and genres mm-hmm. uh, that it's doing you know you've got that it opens up with that nice double indemnity homage uh with him sitting in front of a uh, video camera and sort of dictating how he got here which mm-hmm. ultimately doesn't end up playing into the movie at all by the end it doesn't like double indemnity <laughs> it wraps up this it's just like no we're going skiing <laughs> No, it played into the ending. What are you talking about? That he watched that tape for his whole setup at the end. That that was all to trick uh, Sam Neill's character um, into coming outside. Like it, it was a plot point. Uh, it's 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 uh, it's there. It yeah, just no. it it doesn't like the the thing the thing that really works with the double indemnity piece is it's it's sort of it brings all of the. Uh, ambiguous morality and it brings all of those things together and um also with you know his um his dying there as he's telling the story like I just, okay i just want to stop you if you're going to compare this movie to double indemn- indemnity we're going to have a bad time okay let's just not go down that road double indemnity is better double indemnity is a great number one movie okay <laughs> Let's just get off of it. Daryl Hannah is not Barbara Stanwyck. I have a real big problem with that. <laughs> um, no, okay, that's fair. Um, but I just, you know, that's one I of those see, things. I know what you're saying. I, I, I hear you. It, it wasn't a device that you thought worked well. It, yeah. it drew from some good inspiration and was not as good as that. Well, and I, it, I hear you. It, it used it just to say, hey, you've seen this movie before, remember? That that was all that, that really felt like. And, and I think there's a lot of that going on here. I... I do really enjoy parts of this movie. So I, I find it interesting that you like the latter half better. Well, I, I think by that point, it, it had like, he had a second person. It wasn't as much watching 
sometimes Chevy Chase, sometimes an empty screen. Yeah. Like it had moved on and we had caught a little bit of a plot and, and they were working through some of those invisible things. Like what if we put makeup on them? What if we did this? Like they were, they Oh, were, there's, there's still plenty of that with, with the back half with Daryl Hannah and going, going. No, no, the, no. That's what I mean. That the back half is where we were okay. really, I felt starting to play with it and, and have more interaction. I think I didn't enjoy just the lonely front half as much. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, and I think there's so much about, cause I, there's, so there weren't really any supplements to watch. This is a movie that has like a, I think a region B Blu-ray it's getting, we're finally getting a scream factory release that has, you know, some supplements and stuff, but I, I've been watching a, like I watched as anything I can get my hands on. So a bunch of like featurettes made at the time from EPKs or whatever, um, interviews with, there was actually a, I think it was an HBO, um, thing that I found on YouTube. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. It was a entertaining watch. Um, it was pretty cheesy, but kind of fun. Chevy chase, like takes us all around, hosts us. He was, and he was, Chevy chase was very nice dude on screen, but then you see him kind of complaining about, you know, cause he's, he had to put on, you know, he had to put on the contact lenses that cover his entire eyes for, for parts like whenever, whenever Daryl Hannah's putting on the makeup for mm-hmm. him. And, uh, you know, he had to go through a lot for makeup and visual effects throughout this entire film. Um, he was, he was kind of a trooper, but I, all of this is to, so I, I watched a bunch of stuff about the making of, and it seems like no one person or no two people explain the movie in the same sort of manner, which is generally a bad thing. We should probably talk about the fact that John Carpenter did not even feel enough ownership in this movie to let it be John Carpenter's memoirs of an invisible man. Absolutely. Well, and this is, you know, this is coming over from Universal where he had final cut on all of his pictures. Comes to Warner Brothers and they don't give him final cut. So that's that's one thing. Um and you know, I I saw an interview where they were talking about, well, the producers really want to make sure that um, we get into kind of the psychology of he is an invisible man, you know, and we even get a line early on. Never been married, parents both deceased. The guy's got a few friends, but not real close to any of them. Not exactly a workaholic either. He kind of plays it fast and loose. You know, it's always difficult with people like this. No strong emotional ties, no political beliefs, no particular interests. Matter of fact, when you think about it, the man has the perfect profile. He was invisible before he was invisible. That line could have worked if it would have been like on the edge of the the roof. Sam Neill tells him that something like that. Save it for the Maybe. end to try to tie it up a little better. Maybe it could have played. But he just looks out the window and pontificates the words that the producer said had to be in the script. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of people trying to do a, a lot of different things. I know Chevy Chase at the time, he was sort of on a rebound of, uh, like, I think Christmas Vacation had just recently been a pretty big hit for him. Um, but he, his 80s, the 80s were a little rocky for him. And so he was trying to go into more of like a serious acting, dramatic roles, that sort of thing. I mean, this was a passion project, right? Yeah, he was, he is the one that, or he was, yeah, he, he was, 
heavily involved with, I mean, it's a, what, Cornelius Productions or mm-hmm. uh, something like that, which is his his production company, uh, Cornelius being Chevy Chase's real name. And also his father's name on Community, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> he really he really wanted to make this. He really thought this could be a, a launching pad for uh, a new part of his career. And I think there were producers and people at the studio who said, oh, great, we got Chevy Chase. Make sure he does charming comedic things. And he does, you know, he puts on the sort of Fletch charm throughout, but it doesn't necessarily gel with this character that they've created either. It's a very weird, um, on the one hand, they want him to be this guy who no one notices, recognizes, you know, he just sort of drifts through everywhere on the other hand they wanted to be chevy chase with one-liners and quips and yeah well and and the way his his secretary comes in from the beginning she's sort of like oh you like like he he feels like he's chevy chase in the office you know and and that's a big character who everybody is gonna know in that building and so when he disappears you think oh people would notice i think the biggest flaw in this movie and it's not his performance but it's the fact that it's chevy chase starring in a movie and and you think either through the stuff you have experience with him with or the way the film was marketed or whatever it is, that it's going to be a comedy. I mean, number one, you're walking in thinking it's a Chevy Chase comedy. Yeah, that's and and it has comedic moments, a lot of them forced. Mm-hmm. Um, it tries to be a Chevy Chase comedy at, at times. But I mean, if that's the if if the whole like dude who disappears in the background is what they wanted for 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 this character. Don't get Chevy Chase. And I and I don't think this is Chevy Chase's fault, but no. they get Chevy Chase and they say, you got to be Chevy Chase. When really the character that it sounds like they wanted was like a Jerry Lundegaard from, you know, William H. Macy and Fargo. That sort of guy is... Or Stephen Tobolowsky. Could have put him in the starring role. Could could have. I mean, Tobolowsky can be pretty big as well. He's not huge in this. Yeah. But, yeah. I you know, thinking like Ned Ryerson. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, Tobolowsky's... Pretty versatile. Tobolowski's, <laughs> he's at least feels like he could play that character. And and this is Well, even I feel like he could that, disappear. He could have been an invisible man where Chevy Chase has yeah. never been invisible in any room he's ever walked in in his life. Yeah. And not just because he's a huge man. Because he's a huge personality. Yeah. And you're like, hey, be yourself. Be, be this funny character that you've made a living off of because that's the only reason we gave you money to make this movie. And also it doesn't work for the movie at all. I think it's interesting, though, that you like the stuff with Daryl Hannah. Um, I I don't know why, but it just doesn't it doesn't really work that well for me. But uh, I was reading Ebert's review and Ebert said that that was like the heart and the core of it. And I get, I get where he's coming from. I just found it to be the most boring part as far as I guess. And maybe it's because I accepted that this is not a whole movie. It's a bunch of pieces of different movies kind of pasted together. And so like, I liked, I liked the tension of when he goes to David Jenkins played by Sam Neill, when he goes to his office and he's sort of sneaking around, that was fun. That was you know, and, and uh, plays, we get a little bit of John Carpenter sort of style in a bit of the tension. Yeah, when he goes out the back and they're like, he's running away and they're they're shooting at him or whatever. It felt like it it was from the director who had, had just done They Live, you yeah, know? Yeah. The little shootout in the alley kind of thing. Yeah. But then it had stuff that was totally not John Carpenter. Then it had one 
one British guy who had the deepest voice I've ever heard. Like, like that voice shouldn't have come out of that man's body. I will say, I will say I spent the next 20 minutes of the movie as he spoke, just trying to do an impression of him speaking. Like it didn't work, but I, I, it was, it took me so far out of the movie. I think Calloway got in a lot of trouble, came out here, got himself nice and loaded and just walked into the ocean one day. Oh, come on. Nick's way too narcissistic to kill himself. He'll probably wash up on the shore one day, all bloated and eaten by crabs. Richard? <laughs> How can you say these things? I thought you were Nick's friends. It's just, I don't know. I got a real funny vibe, like he's dead. God, that, that, guy, was, that guy was problematic. Uh, he also had the haircut of like an eight-year-old, but on a grown man. Also, he kind of looked like uh, Wesley from The Princess Bride's bigger brother. Yes. I thought it was him doing a voice, and it was not, but I really, really thought it was. I I may have paused the movie and looked it up. When we get to the summer home, I just, I don't know, I I feel like it would have been more interesting, and it would have been certainly been more Carpenter-like if... Instead of it becoming this love story where, uh, and it's sort of, you know, Daryl Hannah's uh, Alice Monroe is, she's not quite as wasted as, um, now her name is slipping my mind, the, the redheaded lady in, uh, in They Live. But she's yeah. not, she's not given a whole lot to do. She's at least, she is a strong Hoxian sort of female character, but she kind of shows up at the beginning and then disappears for a long time. Uh, no pun intended, and then shows back up. But I really think it would have been interesting had they, you know, if they're going to take a bit of a turn, if they had somehow turned it into like this, uh, this ghost story or this, you know, him, him sneaking around and, 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 you know, if they want to throw in comedy, they could probably do a little bit of that as well. You know, you, you could turn it in. Honestly, I mean, if he, if he wanted to go Hawks with it, he could have turned it into a screwball comedy. Speaking of screwball comedy, did you like that he gave his name was Harvey? Did you catch that? Yeah. I thought that was great, but it was, it was just, so it started off like the world's lamest superheroes just found his power. Like, what's his power he's invisible but he's not very motivated so he's just kind of sulking around not eating yeah like he stops he he stops one lady's bag from getting stolen and that's (laughs) it and and so it didn't feel like he was doing any of the fun invisible stuff like and and that came like way later in the movie where where they were like playing with like oh he's around people and there's a, a, a ouija board and he pulls some guy's pants down and and yeah. he he's in her bedroom and he's peeping Tom on the beat. Like, I don't, I don't th- th- this whole premise was sweaty. <laughs> every, every, it was just a really like, what were they trying to do? And then by the end, like he, he pulls off this big heist because he, instead of being invisible, he's not invisible for a minute. Yeah. Like, like that was his whole thing. Uh, he dressed as a cab driver and then he ran through some pow- water and powder. Like it, <sighs> But that's actually where I thought it started to work because at least they were playing with it some and like they had built up some rules in the world of he's invisible and this is what it means for him. And 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 so when he loses that and he can actually be chased, I don't know. See, but that's what I wanted more of like this mono mono cat and mouse game with Sam Neill. That's really but that's what you got at the end of the movie. That's that, what I started to enjoy. That's what you bit. get at the end of the movie. But you've got the whole 
romance thing in the middle, which I just think is so undercooked that it gets like everything at the summer house is just like, it feels like a giant, like it was an entire reel or two that could have just been a deleted scene, one big deleted scene. Or it could have been the whole movie. Or it could have been the whole movie, but not what it was where it was. Yeah, I I thought it was just fine because it, it raised the stakes in that he reconnected with somebody else. He had a partner in crime, so to speak. You know, he had a, a, a visible person and they and they started playing with how can I make him visible? How can he connect with somebody? And instead sure. of just being purely hopeless, it gave the plot somewhere to go, I thought. But I feel like they should have introduced that a lot earlier. Oh, I if they agree. were going to do it. That's that's the thing is like even if even if the idea is oh he's this, he was invisible before he was invisible, like establish that more up front, mm-hmm. and then and then once he becomes invisible, then have that you know then the relationship flourishes soon after, and then she helps him for the first time in his life. Even though he's now invisible, he has a reason to be visible. Like. It just, it's really everything, like all of the elements are maybe there if you like, if you chopped them all up and put them, you know, on, on the table, but none of them fit together the way that they should, if those are the elements that you're going to use. Well, and I I think that you could have taken the premise and some of the elements and made a really compelling movie if you let John Carpenter do what he wanted to do or give it to another direct, like if they were going to make it now, it it there's a few ways it could go. They could go purely comedy or like really high concept and like have Lanthimos directed or something like that, mm-hmm. where it's just this really weird, <laughs> bizarre, you'd never ever see him once he becomes invisible thing. Yeah, but you can't but, hire Chevy Chase and do that. No, you That's can't the other hire thing, it's Chevy. so weird. You need a complete unknown. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, you could go a direction, but this movie tried to do everything in alternating scenes to like make a checklist of what some execs at Warner Brothers thought would make a good movie. Let me ask you this. What did you think of the special effects of this? I'm not saying they were like a 10 out of 10, but they held up a lot better than I would have expected a movie from 1992. Yeah, they're pretty fun. Yeah. And there's a lot of practical stuff where they've kind of composited layers of, uh, you know, shooting the same thing over and over again so that they can get some of those, uh, some of those uh, effects like the brushing the teeth. Um, and I love, I really love the, uh, now I forget the name of the, the, uh, building or the, the company, but when the building is semi invisible, Mm -hmm. that's a really awesome kind of set piece. No, it was great. And and that was one of the things that had me excited because I was like, okay, this world might just be getting a lot better because now we're playing with what it would mean if things were invisible. Yeah. But then they get a little too obsessed with like, oh, but then what would this mean if... If he was yeah. invisible and you can see his stomach and you can, yeah, like it's, it's, you we know, don't, we don't need those, those pieces. We don't need him jogging on the, uh, jogging on the beach with a sweatband. Like, and that doesn't even make sense that he would be, I, I don't know. Yeah. Why would he put any clothes on? Also, basically every time you saw him invisible, if he wasn't in the suit, he was just running around naked. Yep. You didn't see it, but there was some Chevy Chase flopping around. <laughs> So just be glad it, he was invisible. You don't want to see the, the director's visible cut of this movie. I, I do recommend, like, if, if you're at all interested, even an inkling interested in sort of like the, the VFX of this, um, 
the behind the scenes stuff is pretty interesting and just how they all the numerous ways that they pulled off different things. So like the stuff where he's like running, they're running through the rain and you can just like sort of see him. Mm -hmm. He was basically in all black, but then they had a little bit of like shiny black paint, you know, on his shoulders and stuff so that they would get a little bit of glisten that they could then, um, kind of screen that on top. So you just, it's, it's pretty, I I mean, if you're, if you're into those, that sort of thing, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty fascinating. That's not how I expected it. I thought he was like in a blue suit in front of a green screen and they put actual water on him and then just mat it those two out. You know what I mean? Or like green suit, green screen water. Yeah. Um, Well, and there is like, like whenever he, uh, whenever he has his face painted and he's the, the, cab driver and there's the point where he takes off the clothes and it's just his head like mm-hmm. that is that is him i think in like a totally blue suit and yeah. just running you know they but they i mean it's they had a ton of techniques a ton of varied techniques for the different types of stuff they wanted to pull off and i think that is pretty impressive it doesn't a good movie it does not make but it is pretty interesting and then it's also uh there's there's also footage of john carpenter on set directing and uh i always i always like that because he is he is extremely competent uh on set and knows exactly what he wants knows exactly what he needs um and so that's that's the thing that honestly is maybe the most disappointing is like seeing how you know he took he he went whole hog into trying to make the best movie that he could but you clearly feel throughout that uh it wasn't John Carpenter's memoirs of an invisible man. It was Warner brothers and the producers and, and John Carpenter yeah. was involved. I, I, I feel like there are scenes where he maybe won the argument mm-hmm. and like, and, and some, some good John Carpenter stuff shows through. Uh, but, but for the most part, you can tell that he, he worked hard to do what he could within a really crappy situation with Warner brothers. Yeah, there aren't many calling cards here. I'm I'm trying to think of like a scene where I was like, this was pretty good. I I did like when when it was in the final uh the final rundown with Sam Neill, who by the way I thought did a really good job um, with what he was given. Other than being a CIA agent and having an accent that clearly wasn't, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't American. It wasn't. He was like. Flipping it, it was it was moving in. I mean, just like he had a bit of the same issue in uh, uh, in the mouth of madness. Yeah. Honestly, I think it was a little worse here. Um, but no, I liked him. I and I I think honestly, as he's acting with the gun to his head, um, yeah, where it's like he's got to be leaning. But like, I was thinking about that the second time around, and I was just like, that's actually pretty impressive because he's got to act like he's being held hostage, and he's got this rubber gun taped to his head and he's mm-hmm. like it was, it was pretty good yeah and and he was suitably evil like uh, but with a motivation i thought he was i thought he was a pretty good bad guy for what it's worth yeah and um i, I don't know it's kind of wasted i guess but uh I, I did like how this movie was pretty much tame the whole way through and then sam neil tells Stephen tobolowski that he'll cut his balls off and morrissey <laughs> here will eat them like <laughs> Where did that come from in the script? Is that the one thing Carpenter got through? Like, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Who wrote that line? I like, don't know. 
did Sam Neill improv that? That's all I want to know. I want to. I want a two-hour commentary on this movie that talks about the creation of that line from idea to screen. I feel like Morrissey was also a larger character in a in a previous iteration <laughs> of the script because, like, he's references as, as if he's kind of a sidekick guy a few times, but you never really get to see him do anything or say anything. He's no, he's sort he of got, always he got there. trimmed out in a session. Like in in a rewrite, a script doctor came in and said, Morrissey's got to go. But but some of the lines sort of slipped through anyway. And, you know, I I liked the moments with uh, Morrissey that we get of him being a character. It's just he's not he's just sort of there in the background. And I think I feel like it's that way with a lot of this cast, though. You know, I mentioned I was excited to see Stephen Tobolowsky. I was excited to see Michael McKean. They don't really have a whole lot to do. No, I, I did like, like McKean gave what ultimately was a pretty temperate performance for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought he did good. Like he, he, he turns in solid performances basically every, every movie he's in. Oh yeah, so, absolutely. So like, I, I was happy to see him, but he, he was just, I guess, kind of the straight guy who was there just so he could be a pawn at the end of the movie. All right, Jake, you know what that sound means. Or does it? (laughs) Yeah. This is typically where we would score the score. And how would we score the score, Jake? We would score the score out of a score, which is 20. That's correct. But uh, John Carpenter didn't score this film. It It was scored by Shirley Walker, who actually later collaborated with John Carpenter on the Escape from L.A. score, which, uh, if you recall, I was not too keen on. Mm-hmm. Um, this one I liked better. I think it it fits the movie in you know it's it is very theatrical and very big, um, but I think it works here. It works for you know the noir genre sort of thing. It um, you know it doesn't stand out. It's certainly not a Carpenter level score. It's fine. I came here to hand out zeros and review John Carpenter's scores, and we're all out of John Carpenter's scores, so this gets a zero. I'm not even doing it. I'm not participating. I mean, I was just going to give it a null and move on. I'm still going to give it a zero out of out of just anger that you hired John Carpenter and we're like, we want you to do one of the two things you're you're great at. The other one, why don't you just go away? <laughs> so, so zero uh, for Warner Brothers in the score of the score. No offense. No offense, Shirley Walker. What if what if there was just locked up somewhere a John Carpenter score of this movie? Can we take some of the law scores and just throw them on Memoirs of an Invisible Man? If, if I start it when the when the lion roars, will it will it sync up? I, this is a Warner Brothers movie. What did I watch the other day where the lion roared? <laughs> I don't know. Moving on. Singing in the rain. Uh since we can't score the score. Let's uh let's discuss Clash on the Carpenter. Yeah. Who are we even gonna pick though? Can I pick Sam Neill? That's what I had had planned. But let's <laughs> let let's do a little recap first before you're you're jumping the gun here. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So the Clash and Carpenter, we take a badass from or multiple badasses from the John Carpenter film we're discussing, pit them against previous victors, and uh, it's it's sort of this ongoing tournament. So we began with a thing. So naturally, Kurt Russell's our Jamie Creedy was our default defending champion so he went on to defeat victor wong's professor barack in prince of darkness 
Then the creepy innkeeper, Miss Pikmin from In the Mouth of Madness. Then Bob number 20 from Dark Star. But then RJ McCready's reign ended, and we had a lot of turnover. McCready was defeated by The Shape from Halloween. Who was defeated by Christine from Christine. Who was, you know, I mean, arguably was defeated. We don't know that for sure, but was defeated by the whole crew at Precinct 13 from Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, Jake, I would like to point out that even though it says in the notes, the whole crew from Precinct 13... They are not actually at Precinct 13. Oh, yeah. but, that, but is, that is a misnomer. And they did not actually defeat Christine. So let's keep on moving. Moving on. Okay. Um, so the entire crew from whatever precinct, from Assault on Precinct 13, uh, they were defeated by Blake and his band of sword-wielding sailor lepers in the fog. But finally, Kurt Russell returned to the brawl as Snake Plissken and escaped from New York and claimed the throne back from Blake and Co. He then went on to defeat Jeff Bridges' titular Starman from Starman. But he was soon defeated by Jack Burton in an epic three-way Russell on Russell on Russell tussle with Burton and a mysterious figure who looked an awful lot like R.J. McCready. And then Jack Burton faced off with Nada in the longest-running knockdown dragout brawl to date in The Clash of the Carpenter. But Burton ultimately won out. Leaving him to face, dun dun dun, Jake? Sam Neill's cold-blooded CIA assassin, David Jenkins. First of all, I'm just going to come out and admit, like, I my thumb's always going to be on the scale if it's Kurt Russell against anyone. Yeah, but Sam Neill's a bad dude in this movie. He's a bad dude in this movie. But I think he also has a bit too much hubris, which is what gets him in trouble in this movie. He he has a thing that he wants and he's very desperately going after it. But I don't see him as like opposing just straight up shooting somebody the minute he sees him either. No. So like he the only reason that this is a drawn out fight anyway is because he doesn't want the invisible man dead. Ultimately he wants him alive. This is true. Okay. Uh we've got to factor in Jack Burden's luck always because it's Jack Burden. And I in my head, I'm thinking, okay, maybe he tries to kill him and he misses or something something goes awry and so he doesn't. At some point, we're going to have to have David Jenkins and Jack Burden come face to face. And Jenkins is basically just going to say, Jack Burden, you're an idiot. I'm going to kill you. That's all there is to it. And then I think once Burden becomes aware of him, he is he's going to, you know, pull out his knife and maybe just it's all in the reflexes just throw it at him or uh i don't know he's once once he knows he's there sam neal's david jenkins has lost the element of surprise yeah but sam sam neal is a cia assassin did didn't didn't he uh where was it that things went down everywhere everywhere yeah i mean he has some experience like Jack Burton may never even see it coming. Yeah, toppling governments, not not killing truck drivers. Oh, you're right. You're right. One of those is way harder than the other. <laughs> the truck driver one's way harder than toppling governments with security forces. I love Sam Neill to death in this movie, but once I, my thumb's on the scale, I'm going Jack Burton once again. He's... I mean, if anyone's going to get out of it, it's going to be him. He is he is a lucky rabbit's foot. The only reason I might give it to Burton is he's lucky, and and his luck might actually be uh, Chevy Chase's character hanging around, helping him out a little bit. Like, in, in this fight, his luck could be the Invisible Man also helping to kill David Jenkins. Yeah, I like that. I like that yeah. a lot, actually. Yeah, he has luck, but this time we find out what the luck is. <laughs> Although, if they hung out too long afterwards... 
I feel like Halloway may try to kill Burden himself. What? I don't think. No, I'm. Ju- I'm just saying. Like, I think he would be annoyed by Burden. He wouldn't even kill Hitler. Like he, he's a lover, not a fighter. Okay, fine, fine. I'm just saying. I think he would be annoyed with Burden and and second guess, uh, you know, his decisions later. But either way, I like I like this idea that that Halloway helps him out, helps Burden out, and ultimately, uh, David Jenkins, while uh, a great. A great uh, match in Clash Carpenter, defeated by Jack Burton. All right. I can can live with that. I'm cool with that. Well, let's move on to the last category here, Jake. And uh, I think I know where this is going, but we'll see. I don't think you do. I don't. Okay. I think there might be some surprise for you. Okay. Uh, Let's just do it. The Carpenter Canon. We've got three categories. First, we've got... The Carpenter Classic, which uh, really needs no explanation. Then we've got The Deep Dive, which is, you know, an imperfect movie, but uh, still worth a watch, especially if you're a John Carpenter completist or if you just, uh, you know, want to dive a little deeper into his catalog. And then we've got Just for Johnny's Mommy, which is also pretty self-explanatory. This is a movie that should only be viewed by Johnny's Mommy. So, Jake, of these three... Where are you going to put Memoirs of the Invisible Man and Invisible Man? I think there is a little bit here to see, but ultimately I'm going to give it a just for Chevy's mommy. Because <laughs> Johnny's mommy doesn't even want to watch this. Johnny just, Johnny's mama, mommy's not not popping this one in, in, in the DVD player. That might be, that's a, that is an acceptable, an acceptable answer and an acceptable uh, way to skirt the issue of... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but you're right. Well, look, I mean, it, ultimately, I don't feel like it's a John Carpenter film. I don't feel like there's enough there for me to say, this is John Carpenter. You love these things about John Carpenter. Go here to get those things because they're, those things are not here. He's doing it either for a paycheck or whatever the situation was that got him into this film. It's just, it's just, it's not even just for Johnny's mommy. It's just for Chevy's mommy. That's an interesting, I mean, but you're right. It's not, it's not that this movie doesn't work because John Carpenter made a movie that doesn't work as the auteur that John Carpenter is. It's that it doesn't work because there's a lot of cooks in this kitchen. Yeah. He wasn't allowed to make a movie. Some, somebody was trying to build out a cast and they managed to get him to sign on the dotted line, but without that final cut. So for me, we talked a lot of trash on this movie. Because there's there's just a lot to there's a lot of flaws to mm-hmm. look at discuss, uh, but ultimately I'm still in deep dive with this. this oh is, really? Yeah, this is a movie that I mean on on Letterboxd I have it ranked at three stars, but a heart because I like elements of this movie enough enough to revisit it. Um. And and so it's that sort of like, despite the fact that uh, it has more than a couple flaws, uh, it's a movie that I like. And but I don't. I mean, it's not. It's not that I like it because it shows off what John Carpenter is capable of. I think he is in a lot of ways wa- wasted as the director of this film. I think if we would have gotten John Carpenter's Memoirs of an Invisible Man it would have been much better than this. Yeah. That that said, um, it's not a total wash for me. Um, it's an intriguing snapshot of 
a time in Chevy Chase's career, John Carpenter's career. I mean, you got to think this is the first big budget thing he's had since Big Trouble in Little China. Um, you know, he's done a couple three million dollar, three and a half million dollar movies um, coming off of that. Um, a time in a snapshot of a time, you know, just before Jurassic Park with some pretty early uh, CG stuff, some pretty early, um, you know, kind of ILM graphics magic that if you're into that sort of thing is, is pretty fun to, to look at, even if it, some of it works and some of it doesn't. Um, yeah, there's things, there's things that keep me coming back to it. Um, not, I mean, it's not a movie that I'm going to recommend just on a, like, Oh, you know what I watched last weekend? Memoirs of an invisible man, put it on next time. You need something to watch. It's Mm -hmm. not that it's not that sort of movie, but it is at the same time. It is the type of movie that I think could come up at a party. You know, you're, you're deep into talking about like, Oh, you know, it's a weird thing that, or (laughs) someone brings up. Michael McKean or Stephen Tobolowsky and you're like, you know, what's a weird movie with Stephen Tobolowsky in it and Sam Neill and, and Michael McKean and Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah. And it was directed by John Carpenter. This movie you've never seen before. 1992's memoirs of an invisible man. It's that sort of movie. I hear you. And in this whole time, you know, I I didn't call this a bad movie. It's not a bad movie. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's really not. I respect, I respect your rating of it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, you know, I, I'm not trying to defend it against the just for Chevy's mommy, uh, rating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I'm just, you know, it's, uh, yeah. And, and I'm not disagreeing worse. with your deep dive rating either. Like I, I, I understand what you're saying and, and it's not an avoid at all cost movie. Yeah, uh, no, not at all. Uh, it's, it's not a total stinker. It's just, uh, it's just a very, it's a, it's, it's a very sweaty premise. Yeah. Well, if you're going to put this sweaty movie on and you do want to cool off with a cold one, uh, Chris, do you have any suggestions? Well, Jake, I do. And for, I believe the first time I am pairing a movie with a beer that I have not even tried yet. Uh, so what you're saying is you're making this recommendation sight unseen. That is correct. But it also feels entirely appropriate for this uh, movie, for this beer. Let me explain. The beer that I'm pairing with Memoirs of an Invisible Man is any IPA by Springdale Beer in Farmington, Massachusetts. And this is made as a collaboration with Against the Grain Brewing in Louisville, Kentucky. And they say together that it was brewed, quote, to answer the most elemental question of our time. What if Crystal Pepsi was a New England IPA? What? Yeah. Okay. So this is a this is a clear IPA, a clear beer. They say we'll get in. There's a there's some caveats there. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, this is clocking in at a six point five ABV and an unknown IBU, which I find rather strange for a for an ipa i don't know like i mean that seems like the type of thing that you should definitely be uh be checking but they don't they don't have it listed so i don't know um they claim that this beer was made as sort of like this commentary on our subculture of social media driven obsession with uh beer appearance so you know all of the all of the instagram and untapped photos that you see of of beer 
and people being really obsessed with with cloudy IPAs, you know, these golden, beautiful, cloudy IPAs. Like the, I mean, like something that I've recommended in the past, the Puff by Six Point Brewing Company. Um, they have an unfiltered IPA that's the it's the resin, but unfiltered. And so it has this beautiful haze in it and it photographs beautifully well. Um, they claim this is a reaction to it. Um, I, I think more than anything, it's, it's probably them saying, I wonder if we could make a clear beer. Yeah, let's try to make a clear beer. Okay, what, what style do people like? People like IPAs. Let's try to make a clear IPA. And so it's, you know, part, can we do it? Probably a little bit gimmick. Um, you can click as always, I will put a link to this on untapped in the show notes. You can click that and check out pictures of it and see just how clear it is to me. It's, it's not like completely clear, like water. It looks more like maybe a watery lemonade, or I've heard it described as sort of like a really light ginger ale. Um, so it's not, there's still, there's still a little hue to it. And as I said, I haven't tried this, so I can't really speak to what it tastes like or, you know, any of any of those things that I typically try to get into here. Um, I did hear on the Untapped podcast, which is where I actually heard about it as I was, you know, the day before um, I was like, man, I wonder if there's a clear beer. And then they tried it on the show. And I was like, well, that's that's got to be it's either that or Zima, which they also tried the following week on the show. Um, but uh I decided to go with this. Uh, I haven't tried it. They said, you know, the, as far as hop prof- profile goes, it's pretty hoppy. Uh, also has sort of citrusy notes uh, to the hops. So um, if you can find one, try it out. Let me know. Um, I myself have not tried it. But if I ever do get my hands on a can, uh, you can bet that I will be watching Memoirs of Invisible Man as I sip it. I thought you were going to recommend Zima because it's bad, it's clear, no one's had one since the 90s. It's funny you should say that because for a limited time this summer, Zima's back, my friend. But why? Uh, Because, I don't know, millennials, I think. Well, I actually have a recommendation this week as well, Chris. Do you? Yes, it's water. It's clear, (laughs) it's 0% ABV and 0 IBU. I hope it's 0 IBU. If not, send it back because it's not water. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. You can either enjoy Memoirs of an Invisible Man with water or with any IPA by Springdale Beer. Uh, if you can find a can, I suggest you you pair the two together. I I imagine they probably pair nicely or something. I don't know. Memoirs of an Invisible Man is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures and definitely at Hollywood Video. Or it's at the Midnight Carpenter Shop, brought to you by Hollywood Video. Or, if you're still a fan of physical media, you can pick up the recently announced Screen Factory Blu-ray coming out July 24th. If you have something to say about the film, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at Express at carpentercast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or, if email isn't your thing, we would still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. I was looking around town, watching the sun down, thinking the same. 
Jake, it is really red recommendation time once again. What do you have to tell us about this time? Well, I I, I wanted to hit up the film noir aspect of this because that that was definitely playing in into the film, and so I went and finally opened up Filmstruck, which I've been paying for for four months and have only watched uh, No Time for Sergeants up until this week. So I think I paid something like forty five dollars or whatever just to watch that one film, which is fine but now i'm getting my my use out of it and i said i'm going to something with a a voiceover narration uh old school film noir so i put on the big sleep no voiceover that's the first thing i'll point out probably could have could have used some to help tie the 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 plot together but it was a film that i had not seen in about at least 10 years same same for me yeah directed by howard hawks uh based on a, a novel by raymond chandler uh, screenplay by William Faulkner, starring Bogart and Bacall. Like it, it is, it is. That's a star-studded list of names right there, and it is very, very good movie with one of the most confusing plots, maybe of all time. And to tie it in even further, um, Warner Brothers also mucked in this film a little bit and took the screenplay and said, "This Bogart Bacall from uh, have to have or have not." Is is so hot right now. You got you got to spice up these scenes with them. You got to got to put a, a love story in there with them because this 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 is too hot to leave out the movie. So uh, just Warner Brothers' long history of screwing around in in screenplays. Bacall is so good in Have and Have Not. Well, she's so good in this. She's just good all the time. Some of the dialogue in this movie is filthy. <laughs> it's there's a there's a scene about horse racing that. That it is, I definitely didn't pick up on it the last time I watched it, maybe because I was younger. Now I understand exactly what they're talking about. You weren't that much. You weren't like. <laughs> it may have been 15 years since I saw this movie. Okay. It, it, it legitimately might have. But it's, is they. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I haven't seen it yet. I, I probably haven't seen it. It's probably just at 10 years. This was, I think, a early Netflix movie for me. I think I, li- I literally watched it on uh, Turner Classic Movie back in the day. Like, sat down and, and watched it end to end. Um, and and this film is available on Filmstruck, and I, I highly suggest, if they have the Ben Mankiewicz introduction for any of the films, watch it, but especially watch it for this one. Um, it, it, it It's that touch you need on the movie to make it feel like that old school Turner Classic Movie night. Yeah. I I actually sometimes will just go and watch the uh, watch those <laughs> intros on Filmstruck. Like I'll be like, oh, I I've seen that fairly recently. I don't need to watch it. Oh, but they have a host intro. Yeah, I'll watch that. Yeah, I, I watched um, Casablanca this week, and I watched mm-hmm. the Ben Mankiewicz, uh 
introduction and it was good, but they also had the Robert Osborne introduction from like 15 years ago or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, I watched that and that, that was the real throwback. He, 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 he may be the best movie in- introducer of all time. <laughs> yep. Uh, even better than the, the cast of uh, dinner in a movie. Do you remember that? Uh, no, because we didn't have cable. There used to be a, when they'd show well, them. I, I, I understand the concept. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, what do you have to recommend? This is a really, this is, this is maybe one of my otter recommendations, but I couldn't stop thinking about this thing that I hadn't thought about in, in years uh, while watching Memoirs of, of an Invisible Man. And that is this old television, like a made-for-TV special called From Star Wars to Star Wars, colon, The Story of Industrial Light and Magic. And so this this is a like hour-long special that aired on Fox just a couple months after The Phantom Menace had come, come out. It was basically a shameless plug for The Phantom Menace, which I mean, I assume in 1999, it's two months later, probably still in theaters because, you know, especially then, like there wasn't as the turnover that we have now um it was probably you know a year year and a half before the vhs came out um i thought that i like i know i know i had seen parts of like the vfx from memoirs of invisible man sometime long ago when i was a kid long before um i had actually seen the movie and i cannot confirm or deny whether they are in this because while I did listen to the entire thing, I didn't watch the entire thing. I kind of fell asleep watching it and then went back and watched some more and uh, rocked the kid to bed while, while watching it at one point. <laughs> I do like that you're like, I listened to a movie about special effects. Well, here's the thing is I, I had a VHS tape of this. I still have a VHS tape of this somewhere at my parents' house that I watched over and over and over and to the point that like... As I'm listening to it, I'm like, I know what people are going to say. <laughs> I know that James Cameron is about to say, I quit my job as a truck driver and decided I need to make movies. Like, I'd watched a lot. Um, I, it was one of those things that I was just like, I was fascinated by the special effects as a kid. And so while it is mostly just like a shameless plug for like, oh, and here's how we made the latest Star Wars movie. We're going to have more Star Wars movies. Also, this is hosted by Samuel L. Jackson. He's going to be Mace Windu in the next one. Um, it it also it's it's pretty fun. I mean, there's interviews with James Cameron, Ray Harryhausen, Ron Howard, kind of ironically. Uh, John Knoll, who is an ILM guy, also invented Photoshop with his brother. Um John Lasseter, Robert Zemeckis, Meryl Streep, uh, but it's it's very uh, it's it's worth a watch. You can find it on YouTube. You can also find it on a dusty VHS tape somewhere at the bottom bottom of a pile in my parents' house. Um, I endorse it. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely emphatic endorsement. For Star from Star Wars to Star Wars colon the story of industrial light and magic. So, it, it, are we officially the emphatic endorsement section at the end now? No, just just when we've been up far too long and we're recording <laughs> far too late. All right, then that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's remake of a '50s alien invasion horror picture, Village of the Damned. And don't forget, you can catch us in another fortnight on War Starts at Midnight when Max Crawford returns to discuss my personal war crime, 
the seminal classic from 1989, Roadhouse. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And you can check out our Mothership podcast at warstartsatmidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, and tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts. Or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com. Or, if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. But beware, because Sam Neill might be listening. Our theme song and featured music this week were provided by Dragon In 3. Pre-order their brand new album, Double Lines, on CD, vinyl, cassette, or digital download right now at dragonin3.com. I've done it. Have you? Thanks for listening, folks. I want my molecules back!